Okay, it's the 17th of December, 2016, at the VIHE in Vrindavan. I'm going to be doing Canto 3, Chapter 2, Texts 1 through 15. Shri Sukha Uvacha, Shri Sukha No, no, all together, just like we've been doing all along. Shri Sukha Uvacha, Iti Bhagavata Prishta, Shatravartam Priyashrayam, Prativaktum Nakosteha, Otanta Yatsam, Smariteshwar, that didn't work out. Ot Kantyat Smadi Teshvara Sri Sukadev Goswami Everybody, we, we're all like, it's the morning and we're not. <laughs> Has to be three in the afternoon, huh? Okay. Sri Sukadev Goswami said, When the great devotee Uddhava was asked by Vidura to speak on the messages of the dearest Lord Krishna, Uddhava was unable to answer immediately due to excessive anxiety at the remembrance of the Lord. He was born, even in his childhood, at the age of five years, was so absorbed in the service of Lord Krishna that when he was called by his mother for morning breakfast, he did not wish to have it. Sakatam sevayatasya kalena jarasamgata prishtovayam prati bruyat vartupadvamanusmaram Uddhava has thus served the Lord continually from childhood and in his old age that attitude of service never slackened. As soon as he was asked about the message of the Lord, he at once remembered all about him. Samurutama Bhutushnam, Krishna Grisudaya Brisham, Kivrena Bhakti Yogena, Nimamasa For a moment he remained dead silent and his body did not move. He became absorbed in the nectar of remembering the Lord's lotus feet in devotional ecstasy, and he appeared to be going increasingly deeper into that ecstasy. Kulakod mina sarvango, munchamila drishasucha, purnaito lakshitastena, sneha prasasamputa. It was so observed by Vidura that Uddhava had all the transcendental bodily changes due to total ecstasy, and he was trying to wipe away tears of separation from his eyes. Thus Vidura could understand that Uddhava had completely assimilated extensive love for the Lord. Shanakai Bhagavalokan Riyokam Punarabhata Vimishyadevajigunam Pratyamudava Utsayam The great devotee Uddhava soon came back from the abode of the Lord to the human plane. And wiping his eyes, he awakened his reminiscence of the past and spoke to Vidura in a pleasing mood. Uddhava Uvacha Krishna Dhyumani Nimloche Vyarneshva Jardena 
kim nuna kosalam ruyam gata shishu deheshvaham Sri Uddhava said, My dear Vidura, the son of this world, Lord Krishna has set, and our house has now been swallowed by the great snake of time. What can I say to you about our welfare? This universe with all its planets is most unfortunate, and even more unfortunate are the members of the Yadu dynasty, because they could not identify Lord Hari as the personality of Godhead any more than the fish could identify the moon. In Gita Pura Prabhupada, Ekaramascha Sattvata, Sattvatam Vishabam Sarve, Bhutasasamanasata. The Yadas were all experienced devotees, learned and expert in psychic study. Over and above this, they were always with the Lord in all kinds of relaxations. And still they were only able to know him as the one supreme who dwells everywhere. Devasya Maya Sprita, Yechanyad Asadashrita, Brahmyate Dirnatad Vakyar, Atmayuta Tamaharao. Under no circumstances can the words of persons bewildered by the illusory energy of the Lord deviate the intelligence of those who are completely surrendered souls. Pradashyaptaptapasam avitruptadrisham nirnam arayantar ahadyastu swabhimam lokalokanam Lord Sri Krishna, who manifested his eternal form before the vision of all on the earth, performed his disappearance by removing his form from the sight of those who are unable to see him as he is due to not executing required penance. Yad Martalila Paikam Swayoga Maya Balam Darshayata Vigitam Vishampanam Swastasaso Bagarde the Lord appeared in this mortal world by his internal potency, Yogamaya. He came in his eternal form, which is just suitable for his pastimes. These pastimes were wonderful for everyone, even for those proud of their own opulence, including the Lord himself in his form as Lord of Vaikuntha. Thus his Sri Krishna's transcendental body is the ornament of all ornaments. Ya Dharma Sunovata Rajasuye, Yerikshadrik Swastya Yaman Kiloka, Kartsnyena Chadyena Katam Vilatur, Arvakshatu Kosalam Ityamanita. All the demigods from the upper, lower, and middle universal planetary systems assembled at the altar of the Rajasuya sacrifice performed by Maharaj Yudhisthira. After seeing the beautiful bodily features of Lord Krishna, they all contemplated that he was the ultimate dexterous creation of Brahma, the creator of human beings. Yasya Nuraga Plutahasya Rasa, Rila Baloka Pratilabdamana, Rajasriya Duridira Nupavrita, Diyo Vatsastu Kila Krishashesha. The damsels of Raja, after pastimes of laughter, humor, and exchanges of glances, 
with anguish when Krishna left them. They used to follow him with their eyes, and thus they sat down with stunned intelligence and could not finish their household duties. Swashanta Rupesh Vitarai Swarupai Abhyar Yanyama Shitu Kampitatma Paravasesho Maharam Sahipto Yajo Pichato Bhagavan Yatagni The personality of Godhead, the all-compassionate controller of both the spiritual and material creations, is unborn, but when there is friction between his peaceful devotees and persons who are in the material modes of nature, he takes birth just by fire, accompanied by the Alright, so first of all, I'd like us to look at Uddhava's devotional qualities, which are particularly given in the first few verses. And we went over. So can anyone tell me about Uddhava's devotional qualities? He was feeling anxiety by remembering the Lord. Uh-huh. 
devotional ecstasy. Okay, let's see if I got any that you guys didn't get. I got ecstasy at being asked about the Lord, all the symptoms of ecstasy, never felt fatigued, so I've never slackened or fatigued, never felt fatigued in service, which is similar to this. natural inclination, which is like spontaneous or natural service. Um, his childhood activities. There was a section here about Uddhava's childhood activities. So what did he do as a child? He had, Krishna's, he had dolls of Krishna. So playing with Krishna dolls. He had more attachment for that than breakfast. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, who said? Yes. Playing with Krishna dolls, not wanting breakfast. I wish I could say this. You could say the same about something, but it probably just isn't that. Attachment increased. Okay, attachment increasing. Krishna's presence. And also feeling very unfortunate. Yeah, the anxiety and crying and misfortune. Okay, so it's interesting about this playing with Krishna dolls and neglecting eating, huh? Mm-hmm. Who here has ever forgotten to eat because they were absorbed in something. That happened to me when I first read the Bhagavad Gita. I was in, was in university and uh, I had found the Bhagavad Gita on the floor of the room in which my best friend's boyfriend stayed. And it belonged to my best friend's boyfriend's roommate. And I was, I didn't usually go to that room, but somehow I was with my friend, and she wanted to stop by her boyfriend's room. And I saw this book lying on the floor, and I said, isn't that the Hare Krishna book? And her boyfriend's roommate says, yes. And I said, oh, where'd you get it? He said, I got it from some devotee on the street in New York. And, uh, well, not some devotee, said some, some guy, you know, got it from some guy on the street in New York. And uh, I said, could I borrow it? He said, sure. He said, I've only looked at the pictures. So I took it to my room, and I didn't go to classes, and I didn't go to meals, and I did eventually sleep, but I remember I stayed up very, very late. And at first, I was just going through all the verses, 
because, you know, it's a big book. And I started reading the purports, and then I thought, and I got so excited by the book that I thought, you know, if I read all the commentary, then it's going to take me a week. And I was so excited, so I was just going through the verses. And yeah, I didn't, I don't think I ate for the rest of the day. And you're just trying to forget to eat. Um, my guy brother Gobarindapal, who's Tarani's maternal grandfather, he says the saints don't fast, they just forget to eat. <laughs> of course, we've seen this with mundane things, right? But we actually forget. We get absorbed in something, and we forget. Uh, the story I, I tell is of this family that was visiting us, and they had a teenage boy, I don't know, 15 or so, and he was playing some video game, and he woke up in the morning, and he just went right to his game. He didn't bathe, you know, just right to his game. And he never came to breakfast that day. He, did, he just did not come to breakfast. And uh, finally, in the evening, the family started insisting that he had to eat. You know, they, they threatened to unplug the computer and turn off the power switch and things. So he finally bathed and, and came to eat. I didn't see him move from the chair. You know, every time I walked by, he was sitting there in his sleeping clothes by the computer. So we all have that capacity to get that attached, yes? Everyone has that capacity uh, to get that attached, to be that much in love. And obviously we can be in love not just with another person. We can even be in love with, a, with an activity, Yes? We can be in love with a game. I mean, it's happened to me with books. I don't know if any of you really like to read, but it's happened to me many, many times with books. That I'm reading a book and I just... I may remember that it's time to eat, but I, I don't want to go eat. And so I skip a meal. Or I stay up all night. It also happened to me with Radna Swami's book, The Journey Home. Yeah. Yeah. With that book. I don't think I slept all night. I think I just... Uh, let me... One more chapter. <laughs> One more chapter and I'll go to bed. One more chapter. And then it was three in the morning. <laughs> huh. I think I gotta take a shower. <laughs> so you know, this this is we all have this. And we, we've all we've all done this with you know, you're absorbed in a person, you're absorbed in a thing. I think it was Thomas Merton, who was a Catholic monk, he wrote an appreciation of Srila Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but something like before he became a monk, he said, if my friends and I stayed up all night having a party and, you know, we're drinking alcohol and just fell asleep on the bare floor at two in the morning, nobody criticized us, but somehow if as a monk I stay up all night praying and fall asleep on the floor, then people tell me that I'm brainwashed. So it's interesting. So Uddhava had this for Krishna from the time he was a very young child. And he was absorbed in taking care of Krishna. He had dolls of Krishna. Of course, who else had dolls of Krishna? Prabhupada. Yes. And who else mentioned in the Bhagavatam? Prashit. Yes. And Prabhupada writes in a purport there about his own playing with Krishna dolls as a child. He also just briefly mentions somebody in that purport about Pariket playing with dolls. Anybody know? Some devotee he mentions briefly. One of the few times he ever mentions that devotee anywhere. Mm-hmm. Can I make a guess? 
You could, but you'll probably be wrong. No, no, no. The only, the only Iskand devotee that's mentioned in Srila Prabhupada's books anywhere is Govinda Dasi. She's the only one. The only Iskand devotee Prabhupada mentions in his books. He thanks Govinda Dasi for Tulsi. Tulsi. Yes. Prabhupada refers to George Harrison. In what book? Well, Krishna book directly, of course. But Prabhupada refers to George Harrison in Nectar of Instruction, text 5, when he talks about the neophyte who's chanting the holy name. He doesn't call him by name. He just says there's a very famous musician, and obviously he's talking about George Harrison. But no, Prabhupada mentions Mirabai in that purport. I believe it's the only time he mentions her anywhere in his books. He did name a disciple nearby, but... And he just has this sort of uh, sentence kind of in the middle of the purport. Mirabai was a devotee from childhood of the lifter of Govardhan Hill. So He also mentions Mirabai as a devotee from childhood. And those who are devotees from childhood like that are called Nichisiddha devotees because never in their life did they forget Krishna. So if they're in a, in a position where from the time of their birth... That's one of the one of the definitions of a Nietzsche Siddha devotee. And, yes. Because today it's Shiva Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati Chakra We can also remember when he was so young, four years old, he made his vow. I have eaten mangoes, so I will never take mangoes of my life. So. Yes, and four years old. You know, if, if any of you are parents, uh, or if you spend time with children, if you think about what does it mean? You know, if we don't associate with children very much, we may not really four-year-old. What's a four-year-old child like? But if you really think about a four-year-old child, and first of all, for a four-year-old child to eat an unoffered mango, Prabhupada said there was no offense. He was just a little child. Uh, but he took it like that. You know, his father just just gently said to him, no, 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 the, the man- this mango wasn't offered. You should have waited until it was offered. And he just said, I'm, oh, I'm an offender. I'll never in my life eat mango again. And Prabhupada said that you know whenever Bhakti Santa was offered mango, he would refuse and he would say, "I'm an offender. If I did that for all my offenses, I think I would just have to die tomorrow." <laughs> yes. Uh, you said that uh, any devotee from childhood means Nitesla. So uh, one question came to my mind: In our movement, children they took birth in all devotees family. Not just that they take birth in a devotee family, if they have this absorption in Krishna from birth. There's some. We have some children who have this kind of absorption from birth and keep it up. I mean, I've seen devotee children who had this absorption when they were very young, but didn't keep it up. So I've I've seen it. I've seen some devotee children who, you know, at, at one, two, three years old, were totally, totally absorbed in Krishna. But once they got older, they got distracted. To speak very frankly, I don't see that most parents are raising their children like that anymore in the Hare Krishna movement. Just to speak very frankly. It's very rare that parents even raise their children with the conception of full absorption. 
You're really just absorbed, aren't you? You, you're going to just keep pulling our class back to Bhakti Sananta's disappearance day. Very nice. Very nice. I mean, the idea of householder life is one is supposed to, one of the main purposes of householder life is to give children that opportunity. I mean, nowadays we have people who don't even want children at all. I'm not quite sure. You know, strange idea of household life. But that, that's one of the main purposes of, of the Grahasta Ashram is to have children and to have children with that, to give them at least that opportunity of full absorption. Of course, one, one reason, well, why don't we talk about this for just a couple minutes. Why do you think we're having this problem right now in our Hare Krishna movement of parents no longer giving their children even the opportunity of full absorption? Okay, one reason is that they're not absorbed. Yes. Giving more importance to material acquisitions. That's just a negative way of saying exactly the same thing. <laughs> so, that's, that's, we call that a tautology when you answer something by basically saying the same thing in another way. But what, is, what do you think are some of the reasons for that? Lack of guidance. Lack of guidance, okay. Because the children suffered in their childhood and they were a little fried with Krishna consciousness, so they want to give them a, a, a space to become happy. I think that that's the main reason. I believe that that's the main reason. Because in the early days of the movement, when we tried to give children full absorption in Krishna consciousness, we mixed it with, 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 a certain, with another kind of materialism. We didn't mix it with... Um, we didn't mix it with some, you know, gross things, but we mixed it with other things. Which we? We mixed it with cruelty, we mixed it with neglect. I wonder if you, what she said. Hmm? She was saying that, that uh, we feel like we want to give the children more of a space. To be happy in Krishna Yes, so we want to make it more their choice. But that's was I, I think that that was the problem that in the beginning of the movement, not in all cases, but in many cases, we had a mix of okay, fully absorbed in Krishna, and we're gonna you know you're gonna get beaten and raped. I mean, it was going on just next door. So when 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 that happened, we had many children who just you know they grew up and said, wait, you know this wasn't fair that I didn't know about anything else, and so there's kind of been a swing to the other direction, to, to, to so much to the other direction that people will say, well, you know, I want to make sure my two-year-old child has exposure to Superman kind of thing. So it's, I see that that's what happened. And as far as the adults, you're saying a lot of the adults aren't fully absorbed, but a lot of that was due to the same thing, it was due to people artificially being in a position of renunciation that they couldn't maintain and not wanting to do that to the children. So any idea of a solution? The, the positive approach, like in the book of Ravilat Swami, we should start not with hardwire uh, and things, we should start with attachment. Very nice. 
Very nice. And you also notice Raghunathas Goswami not only starts with attachment, but he starts with kindness to his mind. You know, he doesn't get out. He doesn't get out of stick really with any verse I'd say except verse six. It's the only one where he's really, really heavy with his mind. And yeah, he starts out, "My dear brother, my you know, my friend, I'm holding your feet, I'm speaking sweetly." And yes, he starts with attachment. He does start with attachment. And if you see that, that's the way that Uddhava also started, the way Uddhava, Parikit, Shiva Prabhupada, they were starting with attachment. And uh, I want to, Krishna willing, I want to cover about about that. But I think part of the problem was that we had adults who were not on the platform of attachment. You know, their so-called attachment was just what? Prestige, what else? It was from the intellect, what else? It was some fanaticism. So it was an actual attachment. I mean, there was some attachment there, obviously, but it wasn't based on real attachment in many cases. And so, therefore, when they were trying to get their children in the platform of attachment, they couldn't do it because they didn't really have it to do it. So that's the, that is the key, and we'll be discussing that, Krishna willing, I'm hopeful that we can discuss that part of this chapter because there's a section of this chapter that goes into the process of bhakti and the process of attachment. So, very good to bring this up. And Uddhava was in such a level of attachment that he was absorbed in the spiritual world, he was always in ecstasy and pleasing, and so forth. Hmm. Um, okay, what I'd like us to do is just, just very briefly, and you can do this either on your own or with somebody else, uh, just five minutes, not more. Just make a short list of the things, what activities, mental or physical, increase your meditation on Krishna. Because a lot of this is about how Uddhava was so deep in meditation on Krishna. And some plant. Well, let's just do that first. Five minutes, not more than. Just a list on your own or with somebody next to you of what activities increase your meditation on Krishna. Okay? One of them and that you are willing to do more of between today and our class on Tuesday. Pick one of those things that you are willing to increase between now and our class on Tuesday. Monday, no class. No. No, Monday, no class. I'd have to expand myself. I haven't learned how to do that yet. Working on it, you know. Maybe next time that I can. I want to go on to the Lord's appearance and disappearance. We have a whole section in this chapter about the Lord's disappearance, Uddhava and Vidura, because what just happened in the verses we read yesterday was Vidura asked about all the well-being about Krishna and his family, and particularly certain people. 
Yeah, the Yadavas. And I, I, this was really for yesterday's class, but I found it interesting why did Uddhava pick some of those particular people? He didn't ask about everybody. He asked about certain people. Some of them we had a hard time finding anything out about, right? Everybody talked about different people. And yeah. Some of you said, I couldn't find much about this person. And uh, some people that we might have asked about were not on Vidura's list. Vidura had, you know, he's a person. He had his own relationships. So he was asking about people even though all of them had already gone. gone. And, and Vidura actually knew that. He knew that intellectually, uh, but psychologically, emotionally, he still wanted to ask about them. Okay. So the answer, of course, you know, it's a very small room, so even if you kind of like sneak in, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get to any good so coming in so quietly. It's fine, it's fine. Can you close the door so we don't have furry creatures coming? Yeah, there you go. They can listen through the window, but we don't want them to. No problem, uh, Govinda, one thing you should do on your own is you should please, on your own, uh, list Uddhava's qualities. Okay? Uh, get yourself a list of Uddhava's qualities. So the Lord's appearance and disappearance is the answer, really, to Vidura's inquiry. Right? The answer is, they're all gone. And so there's some description of the Lord's appearance and disappearance. So what's the Lord's appearance and disappearance compared to? The sun. Does the sun ever disappear? No. No. You know, if you fly in an airplane and you keep following the sun, I read about, I don't know, I'm not sure if it was Muslims or Hindus or Jews, three religions that have prayers related to the position of the sun. But I remember reading a story about somebody in that group who were flying in a plane where the sun kept setting. It was just setting and setting and setting and setting and setting and setting and setting. So they kept saying their same prayers over and over for the whole flight. So this is, you all understand? If you're flying into the sunset and the sun is setting at the speed of the plane, it's constantly sunset. Or, of course, the spaceships that orbit the Earth, they're seeing the sun is always there. Right? And, and any of us who fly, you know, they'll show you those little maps of the plane, and it shows you, usually they have like a bell curve of where it's night and day. And so on the, on the Earth, you're seeing night and day, but where you are may be different. You're flying out of night into day. <laughs> And somewhere on the earth it's always day. So that Krishna appears to leave a particular area, he appears to be coming and going, but it's really, he's always there. Yeah. Or a cloudy day, if you go above the clouds, the sun is always there. The sun is always in light. And uh, this particular example is also given by uh, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, in a commentary on Rupa Goswami's Ujjwala Nila Mani. And it, it's something, I don't know if Prabhupada ever references it directly, perhaps he does, but he talks about it a lot. 
how Krishna's pastimes in the material world are also eternal because as soon as one stops in one universe, it starts in another. Not even just the general sun rising and setting, but you know, when it's when it stops being ten o'clock here, it's ten o'clock someplace else. Now, I always wondered if that meant that Krishna was appearing in many material universes simultaneously, and which he'd have to be appearing in practically all the universes simultaneously, and just the pastimes were shifting. But generally the way it's explained is that Krishna appears for 125 Earth years, and that's like a moment. So 125, 120, the whole appearance, then again the whole appearance, then again the whole appearance. But because in universal time that's happening very quickly, it's considered that they're just happening immediately one right after another, and that they are eternal. Um, Just a little note on that. There's uh, an article I was looking at yesterday, in fact, about what is it, uh, what kind of activities do people like to do? Psychologists look at these things for creating products, uh, you know, advertising, for creating entertainment. And I found it fascinating, and I think I've read this before, but I was reading it again, how human beings want things that are new, but not too new. If it's too new, if it's too unfamiliar, it's scary. But if it's just the same old, same old, same old, it's boring. So it's got to be familiar enough that you feel safe and new enough so that it's interesting. And I thought that's a really nice definition of Krishna's leelas. Because Krishna's leelas are repeating, but they're always new, they're always fresh. It explains that when the residents of Vrindavan see Krishna, they always feel like they're seeing him for the first time. They always have, you know, that, that freshness when you go someplace for the, you know, some wonderful place for the first time. Um, I, I think when we were in uh, Durban, South Africa, and we walked in the temple room, and, and uh, my granddaughter Tarni, she says, Wow! <laughs> And I, in one of my classes, I said that to the devotees there, and I said, I would guess that none of you who live here walk in the temple room every day and say, wow, because you're used to it. So we, we're craving something that's new and that's fresh. If something is always the same, we become conditioned by it. We don't even notice it anymore at all. It, it goes to the back of our awareness. At the same time, we don't things that are too new and too strange, we, we back off from them. Of course, it's interesting, each of us as individuals has a preference for sameness or novelty. It's like a continuum. Some of us prefer novelty and some of us prefer sameness. I think I mentioned how we met Indra Swami, and he said this was the first time in his life he's ever stayed in one location this long. You know, and if, if he was a person who preferred sameness, he wouldn't want to live like that. So the kind of people I mentioned the other day, this one brahmachari at Bhaktivedanta Manor who left this world a few years ago, how he did the same service every single day for 40-some years and never left the property. I think twice in 40-some years he had to leave the property for some reason. So some people prefer sameness and some people prefer novelty. 
I have a friend who was always talking about moving and buying a new house and, and driving her husband crazy. And I said, look, why don't you just move your furniture around once a month? You know, and, 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 she, and she does. She actually does. She rearranges her house about every month or so. So some of us have a, have a high need for novelty and some of us have a high need for sameness and, and, and scheduling. And by the way, whatever we are, it doesn't mean everybody else should be what we are, just by the way. You know, we need pujaris who are going to stay and do their service, the same service every day for 40 years. And we need people who are going to travel all over the world in a different place, eating different food on a different schedule every day. We need both kinds of people, correct? So it's not that everybody should be, what was his name? Jiva something. It's not like everybody should be like that one Pujari or everybody should be like Indra Maharaj. And most of us fall somewhere in the middle. Most of us are not quite at one spectrum or the other. Uh, we all have our own individual personality. But having said that, we all have our own individual personality. We do need a certain amount of novelty and we do need a certain amount of sameness. And Krishna's pastimes are both. They're repeating pastimes, but they're always fresh. They're not really exactly the same. Yes. I just wanted to notice that you know every time you have a darshan of the deities, so it's it's the same, but they look always very new and different. Yes, yes. It's the same with the shastra, isn't it? Yes. And this is just, you know, for a material book. Okay, there's some books I've read more than once. There's some books I've read even two or three times. Some mundane books. But there's a limit as to how many times you can read them. You know? I mean, there are few people who will see the same movie 10 times, 15 times. But most people, you know, maybe two or three. I mean, how many times are you going to see the same movie? Or you have to have a big break. We used to watch uh, Wizard of Oz every year on Thanksgiving in America when I was a child. But it was once a year. You couldn't watch that movie every day. You know, I mean, that would really, it would get really, then it would be a punishment. <laughs> okay, we're going to watch The Wizard of Oz again. No, mommy, please, something else. You know. But when it was just once a year, it could be fresh. <laughs> but I find with the scriptures, it's not like that. They're really always fresh. It's something amazing. That, that they really are. I think, especially if you're practicing bhakti. Maybe that's not so pronounced if you're not practicing bhakti, but I think as we practice bhakti and we become more uncovered, you read the, the same purport in the Bhagavad Gita and you say, wow. I just say, well, you know, where did that sentence come from? <laughs> just things just jump at you and, and, and speak to you in, in new ways that are amazing and you just... Wow, look at that sentence! And you want to tell everybody in the world about that sentence. And if you think about it objectively, you think, I've read that sentence about a hundred times before today. Yes. Okay, another example with the sun that's given in this uh, section is that with the sunset, thieves and low creatures become active. So with the Lord's disappearance, atheists become happy and the devotees become angry. 
So the sun rising and setting in the sense that the sun is always there, even if we don't see it, but also in the sense that when the sun is out, people are happy, good people are happy, and when the sun is sets, the evil people are happy. Uh, and another metaphor that's used here. It was a very strange metaphor that was used. A fish. A fish. That like the fish thought the moon was another fish. So the explanation was that the moon came from the ocean of milk. And when the moon appeared in the ocean of milk, the other fish thought, oh, what a pretty fish. So that when Krishna appears, people think, oh, what, what an interesting historical person this is. That's a particularly strong person, a particularly beautiful person, whatever. But they think, oh, you know, he's, even though he's appearing, they think, oh, he's one of us. And this is, in Sanskrit, does anyone know what this is called, to see others like yourself? Atmavan Mandite Jagat. We think everybody is like me. Or everybody should be like me. We had a, a very funny incident here that I was standing with some devotees outside Srila Prabhupada Samadhi. We were waiting to meet and you could see across from Prabhupada Samadhi they have this video playing of Srila Prabhupada which you can see right from the door of the Samadhi and it was showing Srila Prabhupada being received at a temple and having his feet washed with yogurt. And I said, that looks very cold to me. And the other ladies who were there all said, I was all thinking, I was thinking the same thing because we were very, very cold. We're standing outside very cold, waiting for our group to meet. And here we're looking at this video of Prabhupada's feet with no socks, having yogurt poured on them. And so we, looking at that video made us feel even colder. And we thought, wow, Prabhupada's feet must have been cold. And of course, Prabhupada was inside in a warm climate and, and so forth. But it's so funny how we, we think like that. You know, we, we, just, we think others are like us. We think they're experiencing what we're experiencing. We think their point of view is our point of view. And by the way, this is true even in the liberated state, where we're still persons. It's not that in the liberated state everybody agrees with everybody else's perspective. It's not, it's not like that. Um, I was just reading this in Nectar Devotion today about Krishna appearing in the, in the wrestling arena of Kamsa to all different people and how Krishna appears exactly as the devotee wants to see him. So how everybody experiences Krishna is, is quite different. But anyway, when Krishna, Krishna's appearance and disappearance are, that's another way it's compared. That the fish think the moon is another fish. So in the same way, Krishna's appearance and disappearance, avajananti mamudham anusim tanamasritam parambala majananto mamabhutam maheshwara. That the fools, they don't recognize that here's God among us. I mean, we often think if I could only see Krishna, that would solve all of my spiritual problems. Okay, some other some other points that were made here is that push, push, push the door. Yes, Hare Krishna. Can I do that? Of course. 
Just close the door all the way so the monkeys don't. So another point, we're talking about Krishna's appearance and disappearance. So another point being made here is that Krishna never leaves Vrindavan because, why? Why does Krishna never leave Vrindavan? Because the residents, very nice, because the residents love him so much. So he's always there, or here, actually. (laughs) I'm not used to being here. Yes, so he's always here. Uh, what was another um, metaphor used as to why the Lord appears? To please the devotees. To please the devotees, but there was a particular metaphor. To attract them. Okay, but in this section... It's very much related to that. Very related to that verse. Is that here? Did I miss it? The purport of the 15th verse. Purport of the 15th verse. Okay. Oh, look at that. He satisfied the inhabitants of the places surrounding Mathura. Okay, so this is another sun one that I didn't get. Okay, the sun enlivening the lotus flower. Very nice, very nice. Another expansion of the sun one. Thank you for that. Um, electricity? Excellent, yes. Yes. Uh, that why does electricity appear? Due to? Friction. Friction, Yes. It's usually compared to the fire starting within the bamboo, right? Which, right now, Tarni and I in our room were given some bamboo towels, but they're called babmoo instead of bamboo. So we have these towels made out of bamboo fiber that we were given, but they're printed babmoo towels. Babmoo. Not sure if that's a kind of baboon or a kind of cow or uh, what it is. So there's... There's friction between the bamboo, which produces sparks. And what are these bamboo? What is this a metaphor of? Hmm? I, it was related to what Gopal Guru Prabhu said. The demons and the devotees, yes. Demons and the devotees. There will always in this world be friction between the demons and the devotees. Even if you're Lord Brahma, Brahma Bhuvanaloka, he has to deal with demons even. What to speak of Indra, who sometimes has to run away from his kingdom because of the demons. So there's friction between demons, demons, but also sometimes between the different levels. That's a very good point. Especially when you're in close proximity. That's a very good point. That's a very good point, because the world isn't divided just into demons and devotees. Um, there's levels and kinds of demons and there's levels and kinds of devotees and then there are really people who are not who are really neither as Arjuna brings up in the 17th chapter there are people who are not demons uh, but they're not devotees either they're just sort of innocent people they may be doing demoniac things and they may be doing devotional things sometimes also 
uh, but they're not really devotees and they're not really demons. And yes, then there'll be friction between these. There's friction between the demons and the ordinary citizens. This happens in, in so many countries in the world today when you have demoniac governments and the ordinary citizens who are not really demons end up in friction with their governments. And it happens between levels, oh, it definitely happens between levels of devotees. Definitely. Between one religious system and another because many times different religious systems are on different levels. And within a religious system because people are on different levels. And the, the neophytes especially get into a very sectarian mentality. And therefore there's two forest fires in Vrindavan. And uh, Bhaktivinoda identifies one of them as the friction between the devotees and the demons, and one of them as the friction between devotees. Sectarian fighting. Do any of you know which one is identified with which? Bonus question. We should have some Mahaprasadam to give out as prizes. The one which comes right after Kaliya Lila is the friction between devotees. Excellent. Very nice. May you become a teacher of Shastra. Already. May you become an even more expert teacher. May you help many people to appreciate the Shastra. So nice to have someone in the class who's like that. Thank you. It's very enlivening. Yes, yeah, so at, right after the uh, chastisement of Kaliya, that forest fire, Bhakti Vinod, identifies with the friction, sectarian friction, and the forest fire in the, um, what's the name of the forest? It has like three different names. Ichikitavan. It, what is it? Ichikitavan, is that right? Ichikitavan has another name too. But where the cows and the goats and the buffalo go. When the cowherd boys were so busy playing that they forgot to take care of their animals. And the animals, being animals, even though they were with Krishna, they thought, oh, there's some fresh grass over there. to the Ichikatavan forest where they got stuck in a forest fire. And uh, this is how we get, if we're not careful, we wander away from Krishna, we wander away from good association, that we can end up surrounded by the forest fire of Kali Yuga. And Krishna, of course, swallowed both the fires. But he didn't want anyone to see him doing that because they might have run and said, Krishna, you'll get your mouth burned. But Krishna sometimes likes very spicy food even to the point of actual fire. Yes. Okay, so this friction between the, especially between Parijanaya Sadhunam, Vinashaya especially between the devotees and the demons, pushes Krishna to come. You know, and it seems like even sectarian fighting, Krishna takes a role in that and swallows up the fire. But particularly when the devotees are being harassed by the non-devotees. And of course, the main example of this is Nisingadev, but so many examples. And, and that's why Krishna came even as Krishna, because Bhumi came and Brahma came and we're having problems with demons. Right? That's when the police come. There's no police walking in here, but if some criminal came, we would call the police. Hopefully they would come. That's the, the idea. Um, it's interesting that this that Jiva Goswami relates this particular metaphor 
to Canto 11, Chapter 12, Text 18, uh, which is where Krishna tells Uddhava, interestingly enough, that the way he's manifest in the sound of the Vedas is comparable to fire coming from wood. So we have a seminar on liberation through sound that references this particular verse. Bhaktivedanta Swami teaches this seminar, and he's allowed me to teach a part of it. And if you're interested in looking into this further, you can look up Liberation Through Sound by Bhaktivedanta Swami. He has about a 15-hour seminar he gave on this in Radhadesh many years ago. And I have about an hour, hour and a half seminar on this topic um, that you can find in Iskand Desire Tree. But there we talk about how the Lord manifests in sound, in the holy name, in the sounds of the Vedas and so forth, in a similar way to fire coming from wood through friction. So Jiva Goswami is making this analogy that just like the Lord says, he manifests in sound like fire coming from wood through friction, in a similar way, when there's friction in the material world between the devotees and the demons, the Lord comes. I mean, even for as a very simple material example, that if you're a parent and some bully is attacking your kid, you're going to show up. You know, I remember I was at the New York Temple, and my oldest son was very young, three maybe, and one of the devotees was really giving him a hard time, and I just became like fire instantly. Leave my son alone! You know, just like that. So the Lord also has his, his tendency. He's the father of all living entities, so he has this, this tendency that if some demons are asking his devotees, like, hey! And he'll, he'll, he'll show up there. I think it was Pancharatna Prabhu recently in Mayapur who made the point that as long as Sarandi Kashyapu used his demons and guards to attack Pralad, the Singadev didn't come, but as soon as he attacked him personally, the Singadev came. I thought that was interesting. Uh, Jiva Goswami also comments in his Sandarbhas uh, that Uddhava's satisfaction when, re- when so-called returning to earth, when mentally, consciousness-wise, returning to earth after ecstatically going internally to the spiritual world, shows that Krishna manifests the spiritual world fully on the earth also. That he wouldn't have left the spiritual world. So this is an, the fact that Uddhava is coming back here. And this uh, fact is demonstrated in the Brihad Bhagavat Hamrita, at the very end, when Gopal Kumar goes from the material world to the spiritual world. And uh, he says there was no difference. He couldn't see any difference in the Dom here and in the Dom in the spiritual world. The only way he knew which Dom he was in was because it was a journey. But that, that he wasn't aware of any difference. Now, of course, the pure devotee doesn't really experience a material world at all. (laughs) To the pure devotee, there is no material world, which is one of the reasons why the pure devotee doesn't really care so much about going back to Godhead, because they don't experience that they're not back to Godhead. I mean, here Uddhava is feeling separation and and ecstasy and, and rasa, but they don't really feel that way. And recently on a devotee scholars group, we were discussing one article, I think I might have posted it on Facebook also, where the scientist was saying how our perception of reality 
and reality is vastly different. And this sort of topic is one of the main topics of later on in the third canto with Sankhya Yoga with Lord Kapiladev and the second canto that what's the relationship between the perceiver, the objects of perception, and the perceivable objects themselves. I mean, the, the, the instruments of perception and the objects of perception. We have the perceiver, the instruments, and the perceivable objects. And the scientist was asked, you know, aren't there things like tables and horses? And he said, well, no, not really. He said, but it seems that we all agree that there's tables and horses. He says, but scientifically speaking, that's all nonsense. That's just not true. And of course, according to the Shastras, it's the same thing. We say this is a world of names only. It's just the interaction of the modes of material nature that appear to us as various things. And it's interesting because the scientist gave a metaphor that I thought made things quite clear. He said, just like if you look at your computer screen and you want to find a particular file, the file may appear as a little blue triangle or a little red box in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. And you might say, there's my file. But what is the relationship between a little red box or a little blue triangle in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen and the file? Nothing. Is that really what your file is? What is your file? It's ones and zeros only. Or it's electrical impulses, right? Do you all understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I remember uh, one of the philosophers seeing those kind of that's, uh, those kind of settings. They're all ideas in the mind. It's all ideas in the mind. Yes, Sadaputipur, our godbrother, gave the example of virtual reality, which of course is now much more developed than when he was alive. But just like I gave this example, the teenager absorbed in his computer game. So you know, when he was absorbed in the computer game, and I walked past him several times during that day. And, you know, it, it looks like there's monsters, and I'd say, hey, you know, what are you doing? Oh, I'm counting this monster over there. And, and he was meeting his buddies, you know. He was, his buddies were on, in other parts of the world on the Internet, and, and there's my buddy over there. But that wasn't his buddy, you understand? There was some figure on the screen, and that's my friend, but actually his friend was in Australia sitting in a room. And, this, and it wasn't even really a picture of somebody or a monster. It's re- it was really just metal and plastic and glass. Or you could say it's really just electricity. Or you could say it's really, you know, some programming language like BASIC or FORTRAN. Or you could say it's just ones and zeros. But none of those things was the monster on the screen. So we're not perceiving the world accurately. It's interesting, this scientist was um, definitely heavily mentally speculating about why is it, because he believed in evolution, so why would we evolve not to perceive the world as it is? And he said, well, there's probably an advantage, evolutionary-wise, to only perceiving the world in some sort of coded, symbolic way instead of as it actually is. And in our discussion among the devotees, one of the devotees brought up that a similar thing could be said spiritually. That the great demigods, they're able to perceive the world more and more and more as it is. The higher up you go 
in the mode of goodness, you get up to Lord Brahma, he can actually perceive the world as it really is. I mean, he's the engineer. <laughs> and when you go down, you know, you go down to the bugs and the worms and the germs, their perception of the world is the most distorted. Right? Some blind, deaf creature that's feeling its way at the depths of the ocean where there's no light and there's no warmth. Some creature there, you know, some slithering at the bottom of the ocean and their perception of the world is very distorted. Much, much more so than us. And these devotees were saying that perhaps uh, just like this scientist was making the point that having kind of a medium perception of reality might be useful in an evolutionary sense, that from a spiritual sense, it might be an advantage to see somewhat of the world as it is, but not all of it. To have like a, a middle ground that this human life is, is praised. Even the demigods, it says, want to become human beings. Prabhupada said, that's just like you in Western countries want to come to India. That's what he said. He said, why would anybody from a Western country want to come to India? From a practical, I hope I'm not offending any of you Indians, but Prabhupada said it, so you can talk to him about it. So, from a practical material perspective, who would want to do that? Just seriously, really. Why would you want to go to a place with open sewers and constant horn honking and no safety regulations? And no cash. Huh? No cash. <laughs> no cash. Well, Prabhupada didn't have that problem at that time. But why would you want to do that? Because there's some spiritual value to being here. So there's some spiritual value to a human life, and it could, it could be said that part of the value of human life is that we don't, we have a medium view of reality. Anyway, the pure devotees, they see the world totally as it is. They, they don't have an illusion. And therefore, they don't really perceive a material world. Material world, uh, it says in the four, 14th chapter of Krishna book, in relation to Lord Brahma's prayers, Prabhupada says, Maya exists only within our mind. Maya exists only within our mind. If your mind has no illusion, you perceive the world as it is. Um, so this is uh, Jiva Goswami's point about Uddhava returning to earth. Um, Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur makes the point that the Lord uncovered and then covered his form rather than giving up a material body. And another point about Krishna's appearance is that Krishna is the original Lord, not an expansion of Narayana, and his other forms accompany him. So that's in text 15, uh, and both Prabhupada and Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's commentary. And it's mentioned in text 9, that Krishna's opulences in Vrindavan and Dwarka are rare even for Ramachandra or Narayana. Why do you think so many metaphors are used in describing the Lord's appearance and disappearance? It's to surpass the atheistic class of them. I'm sorry? Just to surpass the atheistic class of them. To surpass the atheistic estimate. Okay. Any other idea why we use so many metaphors? Yes? But it's difficult to explain with words, with a rational mind, but the metaphor, poetic way to express Krishna's ideas. Very nice. Yes? Because our perception is very complex. 
Very nice. Very nice. I also, yes? And also use, uh, use some, um, something we know to explain something. Something we don't know. Yes, that is the, the basic principle of all analogies. And Ravindra Supu made a wonderful point many years ago. He said that if the absolute truth was just something mechanical or objective, then the main way of describing the absolute truth would be math and science. He said, but because the absolute truth is a person, the main way you describe a person is with stories, poetry, songs, metaphors, and so forth. So I thought that was really interesting. So if we wanted to describe the appearance and disappearance of the Lord philosophically, because he's a person, we're going to end up resorting to poetry. If you talk about a person in this world, you're going to do that in story, or you're going to, if you're in a Bollywood movie, you'll do it with a song, <laughs> right, or a poem. You see, you see, um, I'm sorry, I'm saying this, you see, because of this aspect of poetry involving in describing the absolute truth, you see, the modern generation, they tend to have a kind of conception in the mind that this particular idea is a mythology. Yes, yes, it's a fact that because God is described with metaphor and poetry rather than through just math and science, people in our modern age where we seek to explain everything with math and science say, therefore, these descriptions must be mythology. They must be legend. But if we just think about it a little bit, we would have to say that the ultimate reality that we're aware of, even in our own life, is all personal. Everything that when, when we go to the source of anything of which we can go to the source, we find behind it a person. And so assuming there's things that we can't find the source, but anything where we can find the source, we find a person. We find life. So it's reasonable to assume that the areas in which we can't find the source also have a person behind them. This idea that the universe is ultimately mechanical is not based on our practical experience at all. So there is mechanical part of that. Well, sure. Just like you know, our bodies have mechanics. There are mechanics to our body. Of course, the universe has mechanical aspects to it. But if ever you go to the source of anything mechanical, something simple like the clock. There's a person who created the clock, who designed the clock. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tolkien, when he was creating Lord of the Rings, he was doing it for his son, and partially for his folk, for his people. And uh, there was a God there. But because he was criticized, the reaction was very negative. He has hidden it, he has withdrawn, uh, mentioning it directly. Interesting, interesting. Well, in, in Tolkien's books, he mo it's mostly about dharma and adharma. It doesn't really deal with the personal God. It's, it's mostly, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's basically taking, his books have gone, they're, they're more on the Varnashram level. He definitely has, you know, Brahman Satriyas, Vaishya Shudras, and Rakshasas, and dharma and adharma. But God is notably absent. It's interesting to say he was criticized because you have someone like C.S. Lewis who very um, clearly put metaphors directly for God in his works. Uh, like he, he was not afraid of criticism, 
from what she was presenting it to his fellow professors. I see. She has a very negative reaction, and she wanted this uh, the message to be still interesting. Conveyed. Interesting. It's like I know one devotee who's a college professor of religion. And in the modern world, if you teach chemistry and you also practice chemistry, that's a good thing. Yeah. If you, if you teach you know, geology and you practice geology, that's a good thing. If you teach English and you write books, that's a good thing. But if you teach religion and you're religious, that's a bad thing. <laughs> I remember Radhika Raman pointing this out many years ago. So this devotee I know who's a college professor of religion... Uh, he said, when my students ask me what I believe in, I say, I believe in Mother Nature and Father Time. <laughs> because as soon as you say, I have a religion and I follow a religion, then the university will fire you. So I can understand that. All right, I want to go on to the mood about the appearance and disappearance. So we have Uddhava's mood in this chapter and the Yadava's mood in this chapter. So, what I'd like you guys to do before we discuss anything as a group is I'd like you to work with somebody and if you just happen to pop into this room and you didn't read this chapter, then work with somebody who did read the chapter. If you just, are you going now? Thank you. Thank you for dropping by. I hope you had fun. Uh, thank you for being here. It was a pleasure having you. So um, if you're just a guest, then please be uh, with some people who, are act who actually have studied the chapter. So if you get in groups of two or three, and I'd like you to make a compare-contrast bubble. You know those compare-contrast, the Venn diagrams? You all know what they are? Yes. yes, no, Yes. two overlapping circles, or if you have another way of doing it, that's fine. I just always do it as a Venn diagram. Of Uddhava's mood and the Yadava's mood at Krishna's disappearance. So we'll take five, maybe ten minutes. How can it do that if I put it on? Hello. Okay, okay, so we talked about Uddhava and the Yadavas, how uh, they both were in grief in the darkness after the sun sets. We talked about how Uddhava... Uh, saw Hadyan of the Lord and the Yadavas saw him as a family member. They saw him as Paramatva, Paramatma, and Uddhava saw him as Bhagavan. So in one sense, you could say Uddhava was on a higher level, seeing him as Bhagavan, compared to the Yadus who were seeing him as Paramatma. In another sense, you could say the Yadavas were on a higher level because according to Vishnu Chakravati Thakur and Jiva Goswami, they're always with the Lord, present tense, they're never separated, and Uddhava and Vidura go into separation. Why do they lament if they're always there? Good question. But even those who are always with the Lord, he, he is also coming and going. You know, even in Vrindavan, he comes and goes from the village to the forest. It's very rare that he's always exactly in the same place. You know, in, in Dwarka, the queens say goodbye to him every morning. Rukmini's cursing the roosters and... The so. roosters. They're waking up. You know roosters are? No. <laughs> the male chickens. Okay. Roosters. What do you call male chickens in Spanish? Uh, gallo. 
Gallo, very different word than roosters. <laughs> a, a, a male chicken. It reminds me of this word, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt, yes. There's this, there's some spiritual equivalent of this Bogotiaga that happens, yes. So there's always this meeting and separation, meeting and separation. Even, even in Vrindavan, even between Krishna and Yasoda, Krishna and Radha, Krishna and Balaram, I mean, they're always meeting and separating. A few leelas, everybody's there, but not very many. Well, Govardhan Leela. Krishna never leaves Actually going forward. But even in Vrindavan, my point is this constant meeting and separation in Lila. It's there. It is there. And there's even what's the Prema Vaichitta, where the Radharani thinks Krishna's gone when he's right there even. So at Prem Sarovara, yeah. So there's this there's something going on there, but there's only a few Leelas where Krishna's with everybody at the same time. Govardhan Leela is one of them. Kaliya Leela is another one, but maybe not everybody. Mm-hmm. Rohini's back cooking. She doesn't come. Yes? Uh, when you say Krishna's pastimes are happening like all the time, like if, if he finishes in this universe and goes to the other universe, then the other ones are there. But it also means that Vidura and Uddhava are also part of Krishna's Leela. Ah, very good point. And I think we will discuss this later in this in this section of the Bhagavatam. Is it as it hasn't come up in my notes yet, I know it's there. We will get there. Um, it's related to what we didn't get a chance to talk about yesterday, how Samba is considered also to be what demigod? No, that's Prajumna, and Samba is Kartikeya. Yes, yes. So that the these personalities also appear, and they, and sometimes it's that like Kartikeya also kind of experiences what Samba's experiencing, like they merge together for a while, and sometimes. It's a, a demigod who's empowered to take that role. So, we will get there. If we are alive in ambulatory, and the class keeps going on, and if I make it back from Delhi in the traffic, we will discuss that. Okay, I want to just go... Yes? I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. Who is higher, actually? Russell is Uddhava is higher? Oh, gracious. Those are, in, in one sense, they're, those are such difficult questions to answer. You know, when we start talking about higher and lower, because it's always higher and lower according to what criteria. I mean, you want to... I'll just tell you one of the most fascinating things for me is in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita, where the resonance of Vaikuntha think that Krishna is lower than Narayan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just fascinated me. Because until I read that, you know, I was I never had in this life connection with Vedic literature until Srila Prabhupada. 
So Prabhupada says Krishna is the highest and Narayan comes from him, Vishnu is lower, and so that's just what it is. And I had never thought anything else because I never thought anything else. <clears throat> I mean, there was one gentleman from South India who on uh, the internet and, and messenger was arguing with me for weeks on this point. You know, that, that Krishna is, is the manifestation of Vishnu rather than Vishnu is a manifestation of Krishna. And I, I, you know, I kept saying to him, Prabhu, you know, if you want to think that way, that's just fine. We don't really need to argue about this. And he kept, you know, wanting to argue about it. So it, it was a great revelation for me when I read in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita how the residents of Vaikuntha, their perspective is that Narayana is the most complete manifestation of the Godhead. And Krishna is an occasional avatar. So when I read that, I thought, these are residents of Vaikuntha. They're not some, you know, mudvite who, you know what I mean? I mean, they're, they're, they're liberated souls. They have love of God. They're... So what does this mean? <coughs> what does that mean? And, and I, I concluded that what's highest depends a lot on us. On rasa. It's, it's very personal because if you go to the, the, the tattva, that the absolute is personal. Tattva is the absolute is personal. That means the absolute is subjectively understood. See, in this world, our subjectivity is a real problem. I, I see things one way, you see things another way. There was a Beatles song like this. If you would only see things my way, we'd all work it out. And, and this is, right, it's, it's a problem. I have my opinion, you have your opinion. We're looking at the same thing at the same time in the same place. And we just think if all of us saw it the same way, we wouldn't have any problems. And a devotee, <coughs> devotee wrote to Srila Prabhupada about this and said these differences of opinion are due to impersonalism and Prabhupada wrote, no, they're due to personalism. The part of the symptom of being a person is that you have your own opinion. You know, my granddaughter and I are traveling and sometimes she'll say, you know, she'll ask me to taste something first and she'll say, Grandma, do you like it? And sometimes I'll say, well, I like it, but I don't know if you'll like it. <laughs> and there are some things that I love and she hates. And it's just, you understand? There, there's, we have a different opinion. Does this taste good? And I'll say, wow, this tastes really good. She says, no, it tastes terrible. So these, this, in this world, again, because these differences of opinion are all ego-centered, it's really a problem, and we wish everybody would agree. Of course, we generally want everyone to agree with us. Um, but in the spiritual world, there are also disagreements. There are differences of opinion. But they're not ego-centered, they're Krishna-centered, and therefore there's no envy involved. There may be conflict, by the way. There is conflict. They were having a debate in Vaikuntha, so that was a kind of conflict. But it was a loving conflict, like you, have a, you play a game with your friends and there's some sport. You know, there, there's no malice, hopefully. <laughs> so it, it, it sort of opened my thinking to this idea of what is higher and lower. And what I came to understand is 
Narayana is the highest if you define God in terms of godness. If you're going to define who is God and you're going to define it in terms of power and majesty and opulence and grandeur, which is what we think of when we think of God, then, you know, it's true. Narayana is higher than Krishna in that kind of godness. Am I correct? If that's, if that's your definition of God. But if your definition of God is that being who's most complete, then you have to go to Krishna because he's a Kila Rasamrita Murti. That, that very aspect of godness of Narayan prevents all sorts of rasa from occurring. But it depends on you. You know, it's it just like... Um, <laughs> so I, I supervise some education classes here in Vrindavan. And a friend of mine said, what do you expect when you visit? And I said, well, not much. And she said, well, I think you'll be very happy. But I wasn't happy. I went and I saw that as far as teaching, there wasn't much teaching and learning happening. And I said to my friend, why did you say I would be happy? She said, because everyone is so enthusiastic. So we were looking at different things. She was looking at the enthusiasm and I was looking at the teaching. Oh, this is a good class. Why? Because everybody's enthusiastic. I said, it's a terrible class. Nobody's learning anything. But we're, we're looking at different angles. So this is why ten people can go to the same place at the same time and do the same thing, and some of them don't like it. You understand? Or I, I have three children, and we had a Gurukul in our home. So my two older children thought that was wonderful, and my younger son thought that was terrible. You know, my two older children said, oh, my, my parents are so dedicated to us that they're sacrificing their home to have a school in their home for us. And my younger son said, if you really loved me, you'd get the school out of the house so we could have a home. Said, I don't have a home. Said, I don't, I, he said, I live in a school with a teacher. I don't live in a home with a mother. So, but my other children didn't see it that way. So the same, the same situation, what's higher and lower, is, is, is seen very differently. So whenever you want to talk about this, you have, in terms of what? If it's in terms of, you know, Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan, Uddhava is on a higher level. If it's in terms of Closeness to Vrindavan, Uddhava is on a higher level. If it's in terms here that it seems the Yadavas have this, this opulence of always being the associate of the Lord. It's one of the four kinds of liberation. And Uddhava seems to be going in the separation and meeting. So on that level, you could say the Yadavas are higher. Um, that Uddhava has a lot of gyan. And the Yadavas are just there in their relationship. So on that sense, you could say that the Yadavas are higher. But it's always higher or lower in what? To whom? You follow? Better or worse about, as soon as you do evaluation, you go into personality. All right, I just have 10, 11 more minutes. Nine on my watch. So I'd like to go through just 
uh, some section of this chapter that deal with progressive bhakti. Um, and this is just kind of a side thing that I wanted to do just if there was time. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that really interests me personally. So we talked about, uh, and I said I would try to get to it at the end of the class, that um, the, the idea, we were talking about Uddhava's qualities, was this taste and attachment from childhood. Right? And that this chapter, uh, the verses, and particularly Prabhupada's purports, are explaining the advancement of bhakti as an advancement of attachment and taste. Like that Krishna is the dearest one. This is sort of the essence. To what extent is Krishna dear to me? And there's a point made several times here that there's no, and was made also in the previous verses we studied, that there's no difference between remembering the Lord and the Lord. Right? Remember we talked about places of pilgrimage and that quote, searching for the Lord, was such a, a strange quote, wasn't it? Searching for the Lord is as good as meeting the Lord, and when you search for the Lord, you are meeting the Lord. That from a strictly logical English point of view doesn't make any sense at all. Looking for you is as good as finding you, and when I'm looking for you, I have found you. <laughs> I, think it's, I think we're looking at Rasa here. We're looking at Rasa. That absorption, absorption in the Lord puts you in the presence of the Lord. And the more you're absorbed in looking for the Lord, the more you feel his presence. Like there's that quote where Radharani says, when I'm with Krishna, I see one Krishna. When I'm separated, I see Krishna's everywhere. One friend of mine in traveling uh, on pilgrimage got very, very hurt, very severely uh, physically injured. And this was somebody who was brought up in Krishna consciousness, and uh, my friend told me, as soon as I got really hurt, she said, I was in so much pain. She said, I was in so much, she said, I was in the most unbearable physical pain I've ever been in my life. And she said, somehow I went to my childhood songs about Krishna, about Krishna's pastimes. And as I started remembering and singing these songs, she said, somehow I didn't chant the Hare Krishna mantra, but I chanted these songs of Krishna's leelas. She said, all of a sudden, I saw Krishna everywhere. She said, I literally saw Krishna everywhere. He was, he was everywhere around me. So th- this point is very much made in this section. Prabhupada talks about in 325 purport. He says, there's three stages of devotion, which here he identifies as following regulated principles in the codes of devotional service, then assimilation and realization of the steady condition of devotional service, and ecstasy symptomized by transcendental bodily expression. Um, those are not the same stages that Rupa Goswami gives in the Nectar Devotion, Bhakti Rasami to Sindhu. Bhakti Rasami to Sindhu, he gives sadhana, bhava, and prema. And sadhana being divided into uh, vaidhi sadhana and raga sadhana. And here, Srila uh, Prabhupada seems to be saying there's vaidhi sadhana, there's nista, and there's ecstasy. Ecstasy, he seems to be lumping Abhava and Prema together. So he's putting here Nishta as a, as a separate stage. thought that was interesting. Um, then in 326 purport, Srila Prabhupada says that um, taste is the seed of devotional service. 
Again, going to this attachment, having a taste is the seed. We talk about the guru planting the seed in the heart, the bhakti lata bija, the seed. What is that? It's a taste. It's some, some relish. It's some attraction. It's some emotion. It's an emotion. It's not, it's not a theoretical, intellectual idea. It's not a set of rituals. It's not, this is my religion. That's all wonderful for Agatha Sukriti. But really, this seed is a taste. The taste is the seed of devotional service, and one who is fortunate enough to have received such a seed is advised to sow it in the core of his heart as one cultivates a seed by pouring water to fructify it. I want you to do this with the seed of devotional service. My dear friends, what we mostly have to do in bhakti is we have to nourish whatever taste and attraction we have. That's why we should chant japa, that's why we should sing in the kirtan, that's why we should see the deities, that's why we should eat prasanam, it's why we should study the scriptures, it's why we should go on pilgrimage, it's why we should worship Tulsi, it's why we should associate with devotees. We should be doing that to nourish whatever attraction we have because it's our attraction that determines who we are, determines our identity, it determines our destination, it determines what kind of life we have, what kind of body we have, what planet we're going to, everything. You know, those New Agers who talk about the law of attraction have, you know, they, they've got something going there. It's not that if you sit here and say, red Jaguar car in my driveway, over and over again, you will wake up and find a red Jaguar car in your driveway. I mean, you might, but I don't think it's terribly likely. But it is a fact that whatever we're attracted to, we will get sooner or later. Whatever we're attracted to is what we'll get. What we have now is due to our attraction. And everything bhakti is meant to uh, feed this attraction. So this section talks about the beginning. Actually, all I could see was the beginning and the mature, although Prabhupada mentions three. I was able to identify beginning and mature. So beginning is uh, taking birth in a devotional or a rich family where you have good facility. Why rich family? You have time. In a rich family, you have time. You have to work. You have the mental space, you have the physical space. Not only do you not have to work, but you don't have anxiety. I read once about this rich woman who married a poor man. And she learned a lot about class differences. We sometimes think about you know, interracial marriage, intercultural marriage, but interclass marriages. And she, her conclusion was that, that when there's a meal, that rich people say, did you like the arrangement? Middle class people will say, did it taste good? And poor people will say, did you get enough to eat? <laughs> you know, when, when, you, when you're always worried about, do I have enough money? Am I going to be able to pay my bills? It's very hard. I mean, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs speaks to this concept. It's not absolutely true, of course. Uh, The philosophers say if it was absolutely true, there'd be no starving artists. But it's a general principle, and Prabhupada talks about this, that it's hard to talk to hungry people about philosophy. It's hard to talk to anyone who's really upset about philosophy, if you or very happy about philosophy. Yes, how may we serve you? <laughs> 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 
Yeah. Are you looking for first canto? Okay, you're in the third canto. <laughs> you're welcome to stay for the last three minutes of the class if you like. Okay. That's because we have a different schedule today. Yes. Um, but the, the general principle is like that. If I'm always worried, how will I get money? How will I get this? How will I get that? If I'm always worried about anything, if, if I'm very emotionally involved in the things of the world, then being able to hear philosophy and get, get attached to Krishna is very difficult. Yes? It's very, it's very hard. So a rich family, you remove a lot of those anxieties. Now, of course, it's much better to have a devotional family than a rich family. <laughs> a rich family has its own set of problems. And, of course, deity worship in the beginning, uh, this concept of the Krishna dolls as a kind of deity worship, giving your children Krishna dolls or letting your children have their own deities that they're regularly worshipping. We talked the other day about the importance of deities, so I'm not going to repeat that, but all the same principles we talked about there. Um, And it says, our lack of attraction to the Lord is due to insufficient piety. So again, we don't have time today, but we've had this discussion about what's the relationship between piety and bhakti. So basically, if we're too much under the lower modes, then we're not attracted to the Lord, generally. Generally. With exceptions. There was that thief who was attracted to come to Vrindavan and steal Krishna's jewels. So there are exceptions. Pingala, the prostitute, who became attracted. So there, there are exceptions. Or the prostitute with Haridas, who became attracted to the holy name. So it can be that people who are, who are sinful get some attraction, for who knows what reason, but generally, unless you're in the higher modes. Um, and, and there's some discussion in this section about those who are even quote, sort of below the beginners, that the demons think that the reason the Yadavas killed himself and the reason Krishna was killed by a hunter was because they didn't respect Dhritarashtra and Duryodhan. Oh. All those Yadavas and Krishna, they didn't respect the real king. Dhritarashtra and Duryodhana and because of their offensiveness and sinfulness therefore they were killed in a fratricidal war and they were killed by a hunter uh, Vishnu Chagavati Thakur says the real devotees aren't bewildered by this sort of argument and uh, Prabhupada makes the point in text 11 that the purpose of Varnashram is to develop enough piety to perceive the Lord by developing the qualities of truthfulness, control the mind, control the senses, forbearance, etc. So as I said, we've already discussed this, the, the yoga ladder and the role of Varnashram, yes? In, in making the mind peaceful. So that's, that's beginning, 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 beginning. Be a dharmic person. Yes? I just want to ask, you mentioned the piety to perceive the Lord. So the piety here, is that referred to spiritual piety? Okay, well, it can refer either. It can refer to agyata sukriti, you've piled up unknowing bhakti. It can also refer to material piety that brings you to sattva gun. Because Krishna says the happiness in sattva gun awakens you to self-realization. It can, it doesn't always. The happiness of sattva gun can make you think, I'm really happy here in sattva gun. So you can get conditioned by that sense of happiness. So Satvagun, first of all, Satvagun is not required for bhakti. You can go to bhakti from Tamagun. But generally, 
That's why we have the four regulated principles. Our four regulated principles have nothing to do with bhakti at all. They are to bring us to sattva gun. Nothing to do with bhakti. Absolutely nothing. What is whether or not you take intoxication what have to do with bhakti? That's a material thing, isn't it? Yes? Yeah. That's material. But if you're taking intoxication, you're in the mode of ignorance. So those four regulated principles are to bring us to dharma, which should bring us at least to rajagun. But the idea is to bring us to sattva-gun. And a lot of our way of life isn't exactly bhakti. It, it, it's just it, it's to provide sattva-gun. And a lot, of, a lot of what we do as our regulative life in bhakti is also done by those who want to cultivate sattva-gun. A lot of it. There's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Being very clean. You know, having, having a taste for cleanliness. So w- without that, uh, being nice to people. Yeah. But isn't that leading to other new planets, this kind of training? Exactly what I said. Sattva gun, it's a, it can, you can get conditioned by a sense of happiness and get stuck in sattva gun, or it can be a springboard. All right, I wonder if we're about to be taken over here. I just, we're going a few minutes over and I just want to finish this. I'm just about done here. Uh, mature stage uh, is somebody who never forgets Krishna. So we just talked about the beginning stages. Someone who never forgets Krishna. And uh, when you never become fatigued from bhakti, you may need to sleep. Even Srila Prabhupada needed to sleep. Even the six little swamis had to sleep at least sometimes. Isn't that spontaneous devotion? Raganuga Bhakti? Um, well, there's Raganuga Sadhana, and then there's Raganuga as a Sadhya. So it's not necessarily that Raganuga Sadhana, you're going to be on that platform. Um, so no retirement. You don't think, oh, I've done enough Bhakti, now let me do something else. You know, ha, enough. Ha. So much tapasya, so much bhakti. Okay, I gotta take a break. All right. So on the mature platform, you don't feel that you need a break from your bhakti. You don't get tired of your bhakti, um, and always feeling uh, lowly, always feeling humble and, and lowly. Uh, and in three two fifteen purport, it says that uh, liberated souls never lament because they have no hankering, and they have no hankering because they're fulfilled. They do not mind where they are or how they have to act. Wow. They do not mind where they are or how they have to act. The liberated souls don't even mind taking a position in Krishna's Leela where they'll be criticized. Like Yudhishthira in the gambling match. Uh, like Bhishma fighting on the side of the crew. They don't even mind if they're given a role of acting that is not very honorable. They don't mind if Krishna says, I'm going back to the spiritual world with everyone else and you're staying here. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that, you know? Krishna comes up to you and says, Mahalakshmi, I'm taking everyone in this con with me back to Goloka, but you've got to stay here. Just don't worry, you are just imagine. But the devotees, they're so satisfied. They don't mind where they are or what position they're given. Okay, 
Um, just a couple really interesting facts here. Prabhupada says, liver patients drink cow's urine but not cow's milk. So just like that, those on this planet know there's a salty ocean, but they don't know about the milk ocean. And he says, the Lord, when he appears in this material world, is more merciful than in the spiritual world, because here his mercy extends to the conditioned souls. Okay, so remember, please, 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 please remember, you all have a home task for Tuesdays and Wednesdays classes. Please, please remember, you have a home task for Tuesdays class. And for Wednesday's class, uh, you have actually two tasks for Tuesday's class, one about Leela and one about this uh, pers- personal with meditation. You have a Leela task for Wednesday's class. Everybody remember that? Yes. Tuesday and Wednesday, we will be meeting at 3. On Thursday, we meet both in the morning and the afternoon, so you will get totally 